Many years ago, um, Olympic gold medalist Daryl P. Pace was um, in New York City giving an archery exhibit. He was putting on just kind of a show of what he could do and what he was capable of. And um, shooting steel-tipped hunting arrows, pace punctured bullseyes without a miss. Then he called for a volunteer, and he said, all you have to do is to stand up there and hold this apple in your hand about waist high. That's all I want you to do, and I'll shoot it. And one of the reporters uh, for ABC said, okay, I'll do it. I'm kind of brave, so forth. Stepped up there, held the apple out, and kind of held his breath as uh, Daryl shot that apple right out of his hand. Everybody cheered. Everybody was excited. And then the cameraman approached the correspondent and said, um, sorry, I didn't get it. I was having trouble with my viewfinder, and the camera wasn't ready when the shot was taken. Can we do it again? Sometimes things happen that we have to do over and over again. And even if they've worked previously, it doesn't mean we necessarily want to do them again. There's just that tension. There's that fear. There's that, that possibility of something going wrong. And because of that, we need to develop in proper places and in proper ways persistence. Our message today is from 1 Samuel chapter 26. So we're getting close to, to wrapping up our journey through Samuel. And it finds David in just such a situation. A few weeks ago, we looked at David's encounter with Saul in the cave, where he had the opportunity, he had the temptation to, uh, to kill Saul. You remember, he was there. Saul was in a very vulnerable position. He was without his guards, without any sort of protection. David was there with his men. His men are saying, hey, this is your chance. God has clearly given Saul into your hand. Take his life. And we saw at that point that David resisted that temptation. He held back from taking a step that, that would have been easy, would have been convenient, would have made his life much easier on many levels but he knew it wasn't right. He knew it wasn't what God would have him do, and so he resisted that temptation. And if you remember at the end of that interaction, Saul said, David, you're blessed, and David, surely you are the next king, and David, you know, God is with you, and all those other things that Saul so often utters but seldom means. Because we find ourselves here in chapter 26 with... Basically a repeat performance. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hakilah, opposite Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. So here's David. He's still where he was, out in the wilderness, on the run, being pursued by 
a man with power, with authority, with resources to take care of him, to destroy him, to kill him. And that's exactly what is on Saul's mind. You don't take 3,000 fit fighting men just to go say, hey, how you doing? Is everything okay out here? Saul is clearly seeking David's life. And we find as David as Saul is out there that David has an opportunity very similar to the opportunity he had previously at Angedi. Continuing on, it says Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hakila, opposite Jeshimon. And David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there after him. So David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were lying down. And Saul was lying inside the inner circle of the camp with the troops camped around him. So David asked Ahimelech, the Hethite, and Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zeruah, who will go with me into the camp to Saul? I will go with you, answered Abishai. And that night David and Abishai came to the troops. And Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. For who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head, and they went out, and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had come over them. Here you find David being persistent in his commitment to do what he knows to be necessary. As we, as Christians, live our lives, there are certain things that, that God has laid on our heart, things that God has, has called us to in his word, made very clear about what he expects his believers to do, that are necessary aspects of our faith. Paul tells us quite clearly that we have been called to share the gospel with the world. Why? Because how will they know unless someone tells them, he says. It's a necessary part. It's not necessary in the sense that, some, that God somehow needs us. God is above such pettiness, such smallness. God doesn't need us ultimately for anything. God can do whatever God wants to do. That's the nature of being God. But he has given us the benefit, the privilege, 
the, the blessing of being able to participate with him in his reaching of the nations. As Peter says, God doesn't will that, that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And with those two truths being very much in play, we have been called, we have been given this necessary task of sharing our faith, of digging into God's word, of praying, of worship, of giving, being part of a fellowship. All of these things are things that God has revealed in his word are necessary parts of who we are. And sometimes... Sometimes that means doing things that are difficult, doing things that are hard, doing things that we don't necessarily feel like doing. You have to imagine at this point, we said last time that, that uh, when the event in Angedi took place, that it had been 10 years, around 10 years since David had been anointed king and Saul had been chasing him. So after a decade, David has this chance to, to, to kill Saul. He resists. Now we find ourselves, we don't know, a few months later, several months later, and David's right in that same position again. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? What would be going through your mind? Really, God? Really? I've been faithful. I, I, I spared this man's life. Not too long ago. And here I am again, and he's pursuing me. Here I am again, facing death at the hands of the guy I've shown nothing but mercy and love and grace to. David knew. Once again, in this situation, he had to confront Saul. He had to reach out and make some sort of connection here. And so when he learns of where Saul is, when he learns of what's going on here, Saul, or David does what's necessary, he goes into the camp. He finds Saul there in the middle, sneaking past all men that are lying there, and he has the opportunity. But it's all driven by what? It's all driven by the fact that he has to confront Saul. It's a necessary part of being a king. It's a necessary part of being a leader. It's a necessary part of, of being somebody who's, who's trying to, to help somebody in their journey. David's goal all along the way has been what? To help Saul get past the hurt get past the, the fear, get past the the, the 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 struggles that he's having. Whether it's playing music for him, fighting alongside him, fighting on his behalf, or just sparing his life and letting him know that that has happened. David has tried consistently, constantly, to minister to Saul's needs. And today in our lives, sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations. Maybe we have a, a boss or a co-worker who's 
just not very kind. Or we have people that we've been put in charge of. Maybe we're the boss. Maybe maybe it's our children. Maybe it's it's you know maybe it's that teenager who's just a little bit or maybe a lot snarky. And they're speaking those words and they're saying those things that that they know are pushing your buttons. They know it. I know exactly what I knew as a teenager exactly what to say to get my parents upset. To frustrate my parents. I was a little more careful with it with dad than with mom, but I knew for both of them exactly what would trigger them. So we have these people around us who are sometimes awful. And it's been going on for months, for years sometimes. But there is a necessity in all of those relationships to what? To love them as Christ loved us. to minister to them, to help them to grow, to disciple them in their journey. We have to be persistent in doing what's necessary. We need to keep going back even when we don't want to. And the second part of that is we need to be persistent in knowing and doing what we know is right. Again, we see those things that, that, that were part of the temptation issue. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we went through things that lead us toward temptation, impatience, pain, entitlement, peer pressure, rationalization. They're all present here again, just as they were then. They're here now. How much longer do I have to put up with this? I'm sure it's going through David's mind. Here I am where? I'm in the wilderness. Okay, again, remember, this is not like the Hyatt Regency or, or some posh place to live. He's not in some resort where he can kick back and, and just enjoy life while Saul goes on and does his things. He's in the wilderness. And if you've ever seen pictures of that wilderness or been in that wilderness, you know this was not a pleasant existence. I don't know where, where you all have traveled, but if you've ever been out to, to West Texas, the Badlands of New Mexico, that area, that's kind of the, the terrain we're talking about here. That's the environment. That's the, that's the setting we're talking about here. And we're not talking about being there in the mid, with air conditioning and, and things like we have today with pools and all that sort. We're talking about living out there in that setting. So there's a lot of pain involved. Entitlement's even greater now for David. Saul himself has, or has now admitted that David is king. If you remember at the end of their last exchange, Saul said what? David, you are truly king in Israel. Saul has said it. So that does what? That just heightens David's sense of entitlement. I deserve this. Everybody knows it. 
Even my enemy knows it. I deserve it. Peer pressure. Abishai saying almost verbatim what David's men said in the cave. And Abishai is pretty confident here, isn't he? I, I love. I, I, there, there's just a sense of cockiness in his expression here. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike a second time. You have all that pressure. And then you have the rationalization. It didn't work the last time. Last time I confronted Saul. Last time I showed mercy to Saul. Last time I spoke to Saul and said, look, man, I'm on your side. I'm not against you. Last time I did all that, here we are once again, and he's trying to kill me. So why would I try that again? Why would I do that again? And that's how temptation works. That's how temptation takes hold. Impatience and pain and entitlement, peer pressure and rationalization all settle in, and, and we get to the point where we said, okay, I'm just going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I'm tired of doing what's right. That could have been David's approach. And to be honest, here we are some 3,000 years later. I don't think any of us would blame David had he taken that spear and thrust it through Saul. I don't think any of us would sit here and say, wow, man, that David. been over a decade. He's tried time and time again. Makes sense to me. But that's not what God calls his people to. That's not what God calls us to. When Jesus called us, he called us to die to ourselves. To put aside our entitlement our impatience, our pain, our rationalizations, and to listen to His voice in doing what is right. And that's how what we see David do. How does David do that? How does he get to that point? How does he get to that point of, of letting go of all of these things that are pulling on him. Moving beyond the easy step. Killing the king. I think it really comes down to, to one simple thing. He had faith in the one that he knew to be good and faithful. Put it even more simply, he trusted God. He trusted God. As the narrative unfolds, uh, David goes back to the to the other side. It says in verse twelve that he crossed to the other side and stood up on top of the mountain at a distance, 
considerable space between them, and then address them. And just as it's been time and time again, he's ridiculed, he's, he's questioned about who in fact he is, who do you think you are? Abner attacks him verbally, and David says, essentially, hey, you really have no room to talk. You couldn't even protect your king. I could have killed him. Whose spear, whose jug is this? And then him and David and Saul have this exchange that's so familiar, so so repetitive of what we've already experienced. And Saul ultimately responds there in verse 21, I have sinned. But notice how David responds here in verse 22. David answered, here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today, just as I considered your life valuable today. So may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Saul said to him, You are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way, and Saul returned home. David tells us right there in his response that his capacity to respond the way he has is embedded in the fact that he trusts God. And there's two aspects of that trust that, that, that we, need to, we need to lay hold of and, and we need to take into consideration and, and make a, a big part of our mindset when it comes to dealing with others as God has called us. The first is that God is in fact there. God does exist. God is in your life and God is walking beside you. I think sometimes, even as Christians, we struggle with the reality or with the thought or with the concept that God really is with us. Intellectually, we know it. We've heard it time and time again, time and time again in Scripture and in sermons and in Bible studies and in our own time. We've experienced it in very powerful ways, most of us in our lives, those moments when God moves and we're like, wow, God was certainly in this place. God was certainly in my life. God was certainly present in this moment. But there's no place where that statement, out of sight, out of mind, is more evident, I believe, than in our relationship with God. Because we don't see Him, so to speak. sometimes just escapes our thought, our mind, our contemplation. So we make decisions, we, we formulate responses, we, we organize and manipulate situations so that what? So that we remain in control and so that things work out to our benefit and to our best end. 
Not because that's what God would have us do, but it's because how we believe things should transpire. It's important for us to realize He is there. It's important for us to see things from a bigger lens than just our own little perspectives. There's a famous old story of a family of mice who lived in a piano. And as the story goes, they, they, they loved the music. And as they heard the music and, and it was there, part of their life on a constant basis, they developed this thought, this idea of the unseen player, the, the, the one that they couldn't see. was the one that they admired and they loved because of the music that the player gave them. But then one day, a mouse got a little bold, went out from their little living area around the piano, and, and it took a little tour through the piano. And as they were there, they, they realized, they came across the strings of the piano, and they realized that, that from these strings, that's where the music came from. And so they went back and, and they, they told their, their fellow mice, it's not an unseen player at all, it's the strings. I was there, I saw them vibrating because they vibrated. That's where the music comes from. That's what we should be thinking, acknowledging, recognizing as the source of our music. A little while later, another mouse went out, and they were doing their, their own tour, and sure enough, they came upon the strings, but then they noticed that there was something that was striking the string. It was the hammers. And they went back, and they told the mice, look, it's not the strings. The strings are kind of there, but it's actually the hammers that are causing it. When they fall upon the string, that causes the vibration. And so now you have these three groups among the mice. One group saying it's strings. One group saying it's the hammers. And then you have that other group who says, no, I still believe that there is some unseen player here. That's where humanity is. Innately, we all know there's a God. Talked about that with uh, Augustine on Wednesday night. Our hearts long for a God, and we struggle, and we we search, and we we hunt until we find ourselves in Him. Augustine said, "It's built into who we are. Being created in the image of God gives us the the notion, the idea, the concept that there is in fact a God." But in our limited views and our and our small ways of thinking, so often we step out from that concept, from that idea, and we start looking at his creation and we start giving credit to his creation, what should only be given credit to him. No, it's it's this process, or it's this scientific law, or it's this principle, or it's this thing, whatever it is, however God has chosen to work, however God has chosen to, to make things and mold things and shape things, we want to Look at that and say that's where 
our allegiance should be. That's where our focus should be. That's where our attention should be. And we forget about God because we think we don't see Him. And we fail to realize that those scientific laws and those principles and that music and the beauty of His creation is all what? An orchestrated expression of His ability to communicate to us that He is there. And so it's important for us in in our journey of, of faithfulness, in our journey of persistence, to first of all, continually and constantly return to the reality that God is there. He is, in fact, present. And secondly, that He is able, that He is willing and able to intervene on behalf of His people. Again, so often as we go through life and and as struggles return and as people continue to be people and give us difficulties and hardships and, and, and all those realities, sometimes we let the thought enter our mind that, okay, I believe there's a God, but I really don't believe He's involved or able to do anything about my circumstances, about my situation. David was able to do what David did because not only did he believe there was a God in heaven, but he, what he believed that God was invested, involved, connected to his life. And when we see that, when we encounter that, then we can have the fortitude, we can have the strength, we can have the persistence we need to carry out our task. One of my favorite individuals from church history is a man named William Wilberforce. If you're not familiar with his story, I I strongly, strongly recommend looking it up, reading it. There's there's even some movies out there about it, if you're not a reader. Wilberforce became convinced early in his life that God was opposed to the institution of slavery. And so he set out as a young man in the British Parliament to see slavery eradicated, removed from Britain and its colonies. And he fought for over a decade to try and get people to see, to try and get people to understand that this is not healthy for their nation. It's not healthy for their souls. It's not healthy for their outlook to be participating in this ungodly institution. And after another negative vote on his motion, early in the 1790s, he returned home tired and frustrated. And by his own account, he was ready to give up. 
He'd, done, he'd fought for 10 years. He, he tried for 10 years through, through health issues and through other struggles. He had been persistent in his goal without seemingly any fruit being born from it. And so he did what he so often did. He sat down and he opened his Bible. And as he opened his Bible, a small piece of paper fell out of it, fell to the floor. And this piece of paper was a letter that had been written by John Wesley a few years before, shortly before his death. John being one of the, the leaders of, of Methodism and the revival that had broke out in England. Him and his brother Charles and George Whitfield as well had been a part of Wilberforce's awakening and understanding of, of the necessity to see the blight ended. Shortly before he died, he wrote a letter to Wilberforce, and I want to read just a portion of that to you. It says, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go in the name of God and in the power of His might. Those simple words renewed and refreshed Wilberforce to continue his struggle, and he was indeed eventually successful seeing slavery outlawed in Britain. Our God is more than able to see us through any hardship we face. When impatience and pain and a sense of entitlement and peer pressure and reason even are telling us to go one way, if God is saying go another, we have to follow God. And we have to know that He's with us and we have to know that if He has led us in a direction, that he will see us through that journey. It may not result in success as we may define it, but if we've been obedient to God, if we've been faithful to his call, we have been successful. Because at the end of the day, it's God's glory and his purpose that we seek to achieve. Not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, God, I pray 
And for someone here who's who's just struggling, God, struggling with perhaps a person or a task that has been nothing but hardship for them, maybe for decades. God, I pray that you would grant them your grace and your presence and your strength to be able to respond appropriately. I pray that you would help us this morning, God, to develop a mindset, a, a, a perspective that says no matter how long, no matter how far, no matter how difficult circumstances we may face, God, I want to follow you. I want to do what you've called me to do. I want to be who you've called me to be. God, I pray that if there's someone here who's never responded to your invitation of salvation, of life, of deliverance, they don't have the resources that you provide to deal with the difficulties of life. God, I pray that you would draw them even now in this moment to respond to that invitation of of fellowship, of friendship, of servanthood to you. And that they would find the salvation that you alone can offer, the life you alone can give. God, use this time for your glory, for your purposes. Thank you for all that you've done and for all that you are, and that you are, in fact, here with us today. It's in Christ's name we pray.